they they're awful i can't stand being around them they're terrible i don't want to be in the same room as them at all i don't want to hang out with them don't want to see them can't stand them at all who am i talking about you filled in the blank you got your own ideas you know the awful people you know the people you can't stand you don't want to be in the same room with them you don't want to be near them at all as I said, they are awful. Someone came to mind. Something came to mind. You filled in the blank for yourself. I don't even have to teach you at all about who to hate, about who to dislike, about who not to be around. Because you can, through your own teaching, through your own life experiences, you can fill in that blank. Maybe it's just fruit flies. Maybe you're going to be Christian. Maybe you're going to be spiritual and say, oh, I don't hate people. I like to be around everyone. It's just the fruit flies I can't stand to be around, especially when the cantaloupe has been left out on the counter too long. I'm not talking about the loud people, the people who live next door to me, the people whose mufflers are too loud. I'm not talking about the people who uh, encroach on or encroach on my place uh, where the boundary markers have been set and uh, the government even marked it off. They should know where my place begins and theirs ends. MJ knows what I'm talking about here because I encroach on her place all the time. You're talking about your neighbors maybe or just people that you see every day and you can easily fill in the blank of those that you do not like. And you usually call them they. Sometimes you call them them depending on the circumstance. They are awful. Them people, I don't want to be near them. Uh, they are terrible. And they, 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 them, them, them. And we can easily fill in the blank. As I'm still talking about it, and the reason why I'm dragging it on is because you're doing a, even more of a better job of singling out who those people, who those people are. Turn to Luke chapter 9. We've been talking for a, a couple of months now on loving our neighbor. We've been talking about, we talked about hospitality and about our hospitable Savior and how he did not say they necessarily or them necessarily. He saw us in all our sin and decided to provide a way for us to be in right relationship with him. And that way was provided through Jesus our hospitable Savior who welcomes us, though we are, un, uh, we are not deserving of being welcomed, Christ still welcomes us into his, his home. He welcomes us into his life, and he, he proves to be this hospitable Savior. We talked about evangelism, the need to share with the world how great our God is. Evangelism is sharing that, that very statement, how great our God is with the rest of the world, how we are in desperate need of Him. We have to ask ourselves as believers often, or even as unbelievers, we have to ask ourselves, uh, do we truly believe that sin uh, causes brokenness? Do we truly believe that sin causes division between us and the Lord? As Christians, do we really believe uh, when Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the wages of sin is death? If that is the case, and we truly believe that, oh, how the need to tell the world how great our God is is so much greater. Great. In the last two weeks, we talked about disciple-making about how to be this follower of Jesus and how from the beginning, really, when, when God began to separate Israel from the rest of the world, 
He taught them, hey, these are the things that you're to teach to generation after generation after generation. One specific teaching, to love God with everything that you are. And then as we journey through the, the Bible and we get to the New Testament where we follow the teachings today, we hear Christ say, love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So, so as followers of Jesus, if we are one, uh, as people who have confessed Christ as Lord and been forgiven of our sins, and no longer is our payment death, but instead our payment is eternal life because of Jesus forgiving us of our sins, then how do we neighbor? How often we can easily name those and fill in the blanks of the people that we are disgusted with, or the people that we are against, I, I joked, and I, I won't mention a name, but I, I joke and say that there's one particular person who has never told me what to do, but this person has told me a lot of things not to do. Don't go to these people, or don't go to this particular person, or don't do this and don't do this, and we're a world full of don'ts. But Christ has called us to neighbor well. He's called us to love our neighbor as we love ourself. So Luke chapter 9, I'm gonna, we're going to study the whole chapter together. I think you've got time. If you don't, it does not offend me when you walk out. All right? So, uh, so if you need to leave, you're more than welcome to leave. We're going to work our way through all of Luke chapter 9 and get a good grasp on what it means to be a good neighbor or how to neighbor. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about disciple making. We're going to talk more about that tonight if you come tonight. We're going to talk more tonight about some practical things uh, when it comes to how to neighbor. But I want to remind you of a few things this morning. Uh, when, we're, when we're thinking about being good neighbors, even in the sense of when we several weeks ago preached about uh, the Good Samaritan, the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10. We're going to talk about that again next week. But how is it that we are to how is it that we're to neighbor to everyone that we come in contact with? You are not alone. You know that. You're not someone who doesn't have any friends or you don't have anybody that, you're, that you have uh, interaction with or don't have interaction with because you're here this morning. And so just look around at the people this morning and say, hey, I want to be a good neighbor to these people around me. So in that, if someone falls asleep around you or is not paying attention well, be a good neighbor. Wake them up. All right? Keep them, keep them on track. Luke chapter 9. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to study it together. God, thank you so much for your work. I thank you that we can trust that it's been inspired by you, that as Luke wrote this down for us to read, uh, to be reminded of Christ and what he's done for us and what he's doing for us and what he's going to do for us. God, let us see these words, words from you. Let us hold them as true and as accurate. Let us hear the stories of Jesus and his teachings as things that we can use in our life today. Let us not respond to you in a way that's dishonoring to you, but God, as we study and as we respond to you, God, may you receive glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you know this. We've, we, uh, we talked about it last week. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses and Jerusalem, the Jews would say, praise the Lord, praise God that we get to be his witness in Jerusalem. And then he would go on to say, Jesus would go on to say, in Jerusalem and in all of Judea. And some were like, oh, okay, that's fine. I'd rather just stay with Jerusalem, but Judea is okay. And then he makes this statement and he says, you will also be my witnesses in Samaria. And many of those people would say, many of the Jews would say, no, thank you. 
If you want me to follow you and you want me to be your witness in Samaria, I am out. Those people, they, them, began labeling them. I'm not going to interact with those people. And then he makes this very bold statement at the end here. And he says, and to the end of the earth. Christ wants us. Acts 1.8. We've been commissioned to go and make disciples of every tongue, every nation. You will be my witnesses in all the world. There is not an area in the world or a people in the world that is not worthy of hearing the good news of Jesus. Christ. Everyone has a chance. Everyone should have a chance to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So Christ gives his disciples power. Verse 1 again, Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and he gave them power. Who gave them power? Christ gave them power and authority. Who gave them the authority? Christ gave them authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them. Who sent them? Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them these things. He said, take nothing for your journey. So it's already crazy because he's given them, he's given them the power and the authority to do some things. Christ himself, as we know him now, as we know Christ now, we're talking about God on earth, fully God, fully human, gives his disciples, his followers, power to heal and authority to do these things. And now he's saying, take nothing for your journey. Crazy statements. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, two changes of clothes. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. First step in being a good neighbor First step in how to neighbor well, you have to have or take with you an eternal vision. He didn't say take books and bags and extra money and extra food and be thoroughly prepared. He said take an eternal vision. When you neighbor well and you look at your neighbors and you hear them and you may want to divide against them and say they, 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 instead take with you an eternal vision. You want to be a good neighbor? Think about eternity. Think about 10,000 10, years from now. And some of you are thinking, I don't want to be my neighbor's neighbor for 10,000 years. I don't want to be even their neighbor for a day. Think about Christ and what he has done and think about eternity. You have to have this eternal vision if you're going to neighbor well. You must have eternity on your mind. That's why he says these things. Take nothing with you. Take nothing for your journey. Why? Because if they did, they would start relying on those things. Their mind and their vision would be cast upon things of this earth instead of things of eternity. Christ is saying as a good neighbor, we cast our vision upon eternity. Have that in mind. Then he goes on, verse 7, we have this kind of disruption in life. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. I knew that I took care of that guy. He's no longer around. John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. He sought to see Jesus. See, Herod, a great government official, thought that he could stop the work of the Lord. He, he felt as if he beheaded John, he would take care of the things of this kingdom that God is preparing or God has put together. 
Herod thought he could take care of it. But Herod could not stop it. It wasn't dependent upon one person. It was dependent upon a, a number of people representing God and his people. And in this case, the, the words of what was happening was not about... Herod didn't go and seek after all those 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Herod sought out after their leader. Herod sought out after Jesus. See, the disciples had a great eternal vision, and with that, they represented eternity well, and so their leader was put on display. We'll get to more of that in a, in a moment. This disruption happened. Herod tried to stop things, but it cannot be stopped by things of this world. It cannot be stopped by things of this world. Verse 10 says this, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Just circle that or underline it or highlight in your, in your Bible. We'll get to that next week. They came to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, followed Jesus. And he welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had, who had a need or who were in need of healing. And the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said a very viable statement. They came to him with a great question. I came to him with a question that we've been asking for a year at least here. Uh, so they came to him and they said this. They said to him, send the crowd away to go into the, the surrounding villages and countrysides to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So they asked, do we have the resources? Can we feed and lodge these people? These people are here with us. They've been with us. The day is growing weary. It's, it's almost the end of the day. You, you sent us out with nothing. We don't have anything here with us. We don't have the resources available. So what should we do? Yet send them away. So good neighboring, if we were like the disciples here, good neighboring would be to send people away. Right? But that's not what Christ says. He talks about being a good neighbor. Verse 13, he says, But he said to them, You give them something to eat. You take the responsibility. See, see being a good neighbor doesn't pass the buck. It doesn't put the responsibility on someone else. Instead, being a good neighbor, as Christ has called us to be a good neighbor, we take, upon, we take the responsibility upon ourselves. We look at the needs and we say, how can God use me to meet these needs? We take the responsibility upon ourselves. We don't say, hey, they need this. Who will do this for them? But instead we say, how can I be used for God and his kingdom to meet this need? You give them something to eat, Jesus says. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are, we are to go and buy more food for these people. It's almost like, a, almost like going back up to the, the first part of the chapter here. Luke is recording this for us. It's almost like saying, remember, you're the one that sent us out. You sent us with nothing. You sent us with nothing. So, so if you want us to feed these people, we, we only have a small portion here. If you want us to feed these people, you're going to have to give us more than this. Or, reminder, a good neighbor takes upon an eternal vision, always looking to eternity. Who's the author of eternity? Always looking to God. And in this case, we say to ourselves, oh, I can't handle this situation. I want to take the responsibility, but I can't do this. I look around, and this is, uh, maybe the, I look around the fields around me or the sheep around me. I say, they are harassed. They are helpless. I want to, to, to look at them with compassion, but how am I to help them? I don't have enough resources. Can I remind you that Christians in this world that I am a part of, Christians that I talk to a lot, we are full of excuses. We, we have a lot of 
excuses. I don't know if it's the world that we've been raised in. All generations, I feel, are this way. We just we live in a world full of excuses, and so because of that, Christians have all the excuses. And Christians of all people, those who have God, those who have been put in a right relationship with God because of our confession of Jesus as Lord, we shouldn't have any excuses at all. We have a home awaiting us. We have something prepared for us. And so because of that, we have no anxiety towards everyday life. We have been given, we've been given peace by the author of peace, by the prince of peace. We've been given this peace so we don't concern ourselves about things of tomorrow. Instead, we work for and with a sense of urgency and a sense of responsibility. With an eternal vision, we think about things of today. Herod thought he could stop God's work, but God's work cannot be stopped. No city, no state, no national, no international government can stop the work of God. You know that, right? And if you know that, then you don't worry if you only have five loaves and two fishes, or two fishes and five loaves, or five fishes and two loaves, or no fishes at all, no loaves. Instead you say, God, that's all you need to say. Because he's enough. Our God created time. He owns it all. He owns all resources. He has cornered the market on compassion. So there's no room for excuses in the regenerate believer of Jesus. There's no room for excuses. We take the responsibility upon ourselves and we say, God has called us to love him with everything that we are. And with that, we love our neighbors, ourselves, and so we take the responsibility of ourselves. It's a shame that Christ still has to say this today. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. The command to go and love like Christ has loved. And so they, uh, verse 14, for there are about 5,000 men. Overwhelming, right? An overwhelming amount of people. I mean, it makes no sense that the five loaves and the two fish would feed 5,000 men. Some of you ladies are like, that wouldn't even feed one man. <laughs> it would not feed 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50, and they did so. And they, saw, and they all sat down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said, I hope we have good luck on our side. Maybe uh, it's our right time, uh, the, the stars are aligned, and maybe, just maybe, just maybe, if we've done just enough, the Lord will help us. No, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he looks at the one who created it all, who has given him authority, who has all power, who owns all time, who has all resources. He looks at him and says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing over them. God blessed this meal. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. In this moment, in this moment, God did something incredible. I don't necessarily want to love my neighbor. Uh, I don't want to be a good neighbor because I know it's difficult. Uh, I'd rather create division than uh, cause unity. I'd rather uh, bring um, discord than offer peace. I'd rather someone else feed them and someone else take upon the responsibility. Have you seen my paycheck? Have you seen my grocery bill? Have you seen my refrigerator, the lack of the things in it? How am I to, how am I to do these things? What Christ does in this example is great. He, he's telling us in the first part of chapter 9 here. Don't take anything with you because you're not going to need it. You know why you're not going to need it? Because the Lord is going to provide for His glory. 
If God wants to draw people to himself, he will use whatever it takes. I love in Exodus when, when, when Moses tries to say the very thing that's happening to me right now. He tries to say, well, I can't even speak well. And God responds back, I made your mouth. In fact, I'm the creator of all mouths. I created it. I don't have to use your mouth. I'll create one that I want to use. But instead, I'm choosing you to use you for my glory, for my kingdom purpose. Think you cornered the market on, on mouths and how you can use them, big, small, whatever? No, God is the one that uses those things. If he wants to use somebody else's mouth, he will. If he wants to use somebody else's fish, he will. But he's decided, hey, here's my representative. Here's my ambassador in Lee County. Here's my representative in Taylor Middle School. Here's my representative at Norley, wherever the case may be. You are my representative. And so with that, you feed these people. Verse 18, now some serious spiritualness happens. Christ has done these things, and now they're about to recognize who Christ is. For a moment, they thought, well, this is just a, gra- a guy with great authority. This is just a guy with great power. He's, he's kind of giving to us. He's giving us these things, and we're going to take them and use them also. But in this moment, in verse 19, we see some, or verse 18, we see something great. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds, responding to what Christ has done, who are they saying that I am? You think Christ is concerned with that? Oh, I hope they think of me correctly. You think he's concerned with, oh, I hope they like me. I hope they appreciate who I am. I hope they appreciate the fact that there were only five loaves and two fish, and man, I just did a miracle in them. No, he's not concerned about those earthly things. He's concerned about eternal things. How to neighbor well, we, t- we think about and cast our vision upon eternity. How to neighbor well, we take the responsibility. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others say that one of the prophets of old has risen. Even Herod said that, right? Verse 20, then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. The one that prophecy talked about. The one who's coming to fulfill everything. The one who's coming to save the world, to reconcile sinners to a righteous, holy God. Who is it that we say that he is? The Christ of God. We have to take this as as good neighbors and we recognize who it is that's ruling over the entire world for all eternity. If we're setting our mind to eternity, we're taking responsibility as as a good neighbor, then we also say we must have a good understanding of who Christ is. When we wake up, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We say we have to remind ourselves, I am not the Christ. Instead, Jesus is the Christ. He's the one that's saving me. I'm not the one that's saving myself, but instead, Christ is the one that's saving me. Maybe a good way to look at it is instead of asking you, um, how long have you been saved? Maybe it's more, uh, how long have you been being saved? Uh, how many years have you been being saved? Since your confession of Christ as Lord, how long have you been being saved? Verse 21. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. And then he says this terrible, horrible, not so good, awful, awful thing for, for followers of Jesus. There in verse 23. And he said to all, not just to Peter, not just to John, not just to Judas, but he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, being a good neighbor, you want to know how to neighbor well? You you set your mind on eternity, you take the responsibility, 
and you take up your cross. This is important. That daily you recognize this isn't a one-time thing, but every day we're denying self, we're taking him to the cross, and we're following Jesus. We recognize that life is not about us. We follow Jesus. Deny self. When, when things go wrong and disruptions happen and we want to respond with hatred or yelling or hand signals that cause offense, when we want to respond that way, we deny self. We say, Christ has, has transformed me. Is transforming me into his likeness. I no longer want to be like the world and respond like the world responds, but instead I want to respond like Christ. And so with that, I take up my cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny self, take up cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Don't ask my neighbors. Maybe ask MJ because she's really nice. But don't ask the rest of my neighbors if I... If I look like, if there's an outward appearance, that I look like I'm only living for this earth. And I would hope that my neighbors would recognize that that my mind is set upon eternity. My mind is set upon Christ and his kingdom. My mind is set upon what Christ has done for me, is doing for me, and will do for me. That I'm not concerned with saving my life on this earth, but instead I'm concerned that I would give my life to the one who has saved my life for eternity. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. But I tell you truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We take up our cross. We let the world around us know, our literal neighbors, the ones that we live with, the ones that we'll see at work, the ones that we pass by on the the street, the neighbors that we come in contact with, we let them know that we are not living for this earth. Instead, we live for something greater, something greater than ourselves. No longer is life about us. We take up a cross. We take responsibility. We take an eternal vision. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Verse 33, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Are you convinced this is not just a story? I mean, are, are you convinced that this isn't just something that just, uh, just happened and, and it's been passed down? And, but this, this really happened. We put faith that as Luke wrote this down, he wasn't just telling something uh, to, to add to it. Oh, and and uh, and a, a voice came, and it wasn't really a voice. It was more like a, a thunder. In fact, we think it might have just been a cow, that it sounded like this. But instead, no, 
This really happened. Part of your faith in Christ is believing the things that his word says. As a good neighbor, have you thought about this? That God spoke audibly to these that were there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? And he said this, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. A good neighbor listens to the one that we're following. When you want a neighbor well, you listen to Jesus. There is no better example of a greater neighbor than Jesus Christ, who happens to be God's son, chosen by God to save you and I and the rest of the world. And so we listen to him. Yeah, but but tradition tells me, but uh, genetics tell me, but science tells me, but this book told me, but grandpa told me. No, we, we say we, we trust in Christ and we listen to him. And the, when the voice had spoken, verse 36, Jesus was found alone. And they kept him silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Mostly because they were so amazed. My assumption is mostly because they were terrified of what just happened. A voice from heaven spoke saying, this is my son. There, there were no microphones. There were no bullhorns. There was no uh, uh, altered or, or made-up s- type of uh, sound system. They didn't have iTunes. Jesus didn't pull up his iTunes and you know find the, uh, the Thundering God app that plays a voice, and he types it in. Say this real quick. and Oh, what was that? Oh, it was my app. No. God spoke from heaven. The Creator of all spoke from heaven saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. My only child. My only one. And, he be- and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, like he probably says so often, even still to today, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Praise be to God that Christ also has the same characteristics as God, and he is a loving father, slow to to anger, patient, compassionate, faithful, Bring your son here. Verse 42, And while he was coming, the demon threw, threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at what? The majesty of God. They were all astonished at the majesty of God. Your job and my job is to put that majesty on display for the world to see. How to neighbor well, you you take up the cross, you deny self, you follow Christ, you, you have this eternal vision, you take responsibility, you put on display the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him anything about the saying. And then an argument arose. 
An argument, an earthly argument arose, in verse 46, arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. If you were making a case for the disciples here, and you were going to say which one was the greatest, how would you judge that? How would you come up with a list to say, well, John was the greatest, Peter was the greatest, Judas was the greatest, I couldn't have been the greatest. He was the worst. We can easily do that, right? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Do you remember just a few verses back? And all were astonished at the majesty of who? Of God. They were marveling at the majesty of God. Who's Herod looking for? He's looking for him. He's looking for Jesus. Who are the disciples trying to represent? They're trying to represent Christ. See, a good neighbor doesn't take credit for life. A good neighbor doesn't look to be the greatest. A good neighbor looks to point people in the direction of who the greatest actually is. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, he who is least among you all is, is the one who is great. See, Christ is teaching them that as a good neighbor, your, your whole life is not to be about taking credit. If you gained everything in this world, you would still lose your soul. It's about giving credit to the one who's due the credit. About giving honor and glory to the one who's really worthy of all honor and glory. And that is not you or I. Good neighbors take no credit. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Still the disciples are trying to create segregation and division. Still the disciples are doing their best to take credit for how great they are. Did you see this guy in the next city over? Did you see this guy? He's casting out demons in your name. He's not even a member of our church. He's not even a member of our race. See, a good neighbor takes no sides. A good neighbor doesn't try and cast out goats and sheep before the time. A good neighbor doesn't pass judgment because they're not the judge. A, a good neighbor points to who the greatest is and takes no sides. I love it when we watch sports at home because we are sports people, or I am at least. I'm trying to force my family to do the same thing. And uh, one of my sons constantly asks, so in this game, Daddy, who are we cheering for? I'm like, I don't know, whoever wins, I guess. I don't, have a, I don't really have a team in this, unless it's uh, the Rangers. And then we watch the Rangers, and we always cheer for the Rangers. And we cheer even more for the teams that are playing against the Red Sox. We don't cheer for the Red Sox, and we don't cheer for the Yankees, and we don't cheer for the Indians. We only cheer for the Rangers. But in this case, it's Little League Baseball. We don't really have a team. We don't have a side. We're just cheering for, for all of them. See, good neighbors don't concern themselves with taking up sides. Who do we cheer for? Instead, we point everyone to the one who will divide. We point everyone to who is the greatest. We say, look at the one who, um, who can give you everything that you ever need. We point to Jesus. See, this is where it gets really difficult for me because, uh, because in the world that we live in, it's so obvious, the divisions that we have. 
It's so obvious how often we are quick to take sides. And go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Go back to the beginning of the sermon as we say, they did this and they did that and they do this and I'm definitely not on their side. I mean, as Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. I can hear the cheers of the Jews that have been following him. Yes, we will represent you to the Jerusalem, to the people in Jerusalem. As he says in Judea, so, well, that's fine. It's going to stretch me a little bit. But as soon as he mentions the Samaritans, Lord, I don't want to be a neighbor to the Samaritans. I don't want to go up there. They're, they're full of lies. They're outcasts. We've divided ourselves against them. In our world today, it's Syrians. It's millennials. Maybe it's senior adults. Maybe it's illegals. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's Okies. Maybe it's Muslims. Maybe it's Jehovah's Witness. Maybe it's white, brown, yellow, green, burnt orange. Whatever the case may be, we set and we take sides. And we divide ourselves and we say, I'm greater. I'm greater. And here's what happens. Verse 51, these disciples who Christ is doing a work inside them, transforming them into his likeness, teaching them well about what it looks like to be God's people when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Where's his vision cast upon eternity? He set his face to go to Jerusalem, the very place he would be crucified, the the very place he would be trampled upon, the, the very place he would be rejected. He set his face toward it, not because he was longing to be crucified, not because he was longing to be sacrificed, not because he was longing to be trampled on, but instead because because he had eternity set upon his mind. And he sent his messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Just for a moment, this is not necessarily what this text is about, but for a moment you need to know as a follower of Christ, with your mind and your vision set upon eternity, people will reject you for that. People try and persuade you to live for today and the troubles of this world. They would try and persuade you to buy more stuff and have more things and be set upon and satisfied in the things of this world. You will be trampled upon. You'll be walked over. You'll be rebelled and rejected against because you've set your vision towards eternity. But the people did not receive him because his face was, his face was set toward Jerusalem. And verse 54 says this, And when his disciples James and John saw it, they forgot everything that Christ had taught them. When they saw the way the people responded to Jesus, they forgot everything that he had, all the work that he had done inside them. And what did they do? Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You remember back in the first part of chapter 9, when God had given them, or Christ had given them authority, He'd given them power. Now they want to use it. You remember just a few sections back when they tried to heal a boy, but they were a faithless, twisted generation. Now they want to use their faith and they want to use their power that God has given them and the authority that God may have given them. And what do they want to do with that power and that authority? They want to rain down fire from heaven to divide this world. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You know, as soon as you and I feel like someone is not worthy of the love of Christ, just to remind yourself like I do, neither am I. 
I mean, as soon as we think, oh, these people, these Samaritans, these neighbors of mine, as soon as we have that thought, they, them, whatever you label them as, as soon as we have that thought, Lord, rain down fire upon them. Think for a moment. Let the fire consume you too because you're not worthy of the love of Christ either. And Christ loves the entire world. How do we neighbor well? We take up a cross. How do we neighbor well? We take responsibility. How do we neighbor well? We don't take credit for it. How do we neighbor well? We take our vision and we set it upon eternity. We take no sides other than the side of Jesus. We point people to who the greatest is. We don't misuse power in the name of Jesus for our own sake. But instead, we remind people of who Christ is and the love that he has for them. And we neighbor well in that. Lord, don't send me to the Samaritans. Send me to people like me. Same background. It's so much easier. Let them be redneck. Try saying I'm going to transform you into my likeness. Not the likeness of a redneck. Not the likeness of a New Mexican or a Texan or Oki or whatever. But instead, I'm going to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. And in that, you're going to represent him well. Put the majesty of God on display. Be ministers of reconciliation. How are we going to neighbor well? We're going to represent Christ. Love God with everything that we are and put him on display. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the example, how difficult.